Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, say first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me send, rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Son is, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Father, the Son, chooses to reveal him. Then returning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is the word of our Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading thereof. And let's pray again together. Lord Jesus, you tell these disciples to pray to the Lord of the Sabbath, sort of the Lord of the harvest, rather, to send out workers into the harvest. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send out workers. Lord, we ask that you would send out us. 
that you would help us, Lord, as your people who have been called by your name, as those who have been reconciled to you through the gospel, that you would send us forth with the message of the gospel. Lord, help us to be faithful to this solemn charge that comes to us from you, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, I pray, to consider the fact that we who are in the kingdom of heaven are in the kingdom of heaven because someone was faithful to preach the gospel to us, to obey our Lord's instructions and his commands. Lord, I pray that you help us to be faithful, to obey your instructions and your commands for your glory and for the advance of your kingdom. Amen. Well, we've been seeing a lot of failure on the part of Jesus' disciples. They failed to cast the demon out of the young boy. They failed to believe Jesus about what his journey to Jerusalem entailed. They failed to align themselves with someone who was casting out demons but was not part of their group. They failed to have the correct response to the rejection of the Samaritans. They just heard Jesus teach on the true nature of discipleship. But thankfully, it's not all doom and gloom. After all of that failure, there is a note of optimism here. Now the disciples are going to have another opportunity to learn the nature of true discipleship as Jesus sends out another larger group of disciples. And he charges them with ministry throughout the region, preparing the people for his arrival. Although there's been failure after failure, This moment is pregnant with possibility. Will these disciples succeed? Will the people respond positively? We're about to see some success, and we'll have to wait until the ministry report after their returns. We'll see next week, Lord willing. But these disciples are, are going to have the opportunity to learn about the real nature of discipleship as they face some who will receive them, and others who will reject them. They're going to experience and practice what Jesus has just been talking about, what Jesus has just been teaching about. Jesus is the discipler par excellence. He is discipling the disciples perfectly. Now, of course, it couldn't be any other way. Jesus is, of course, perfect. But Jesus is giving the disciples the opportunity to minister to people all over this region in preparation for his arrival. He's sending these 72 out on a short-term missions trip. There are parallels to where Jesus had sent the, other, the 12 out earlier at the beginning of, of chapter 9. But only Luke recounts the details of, of this mission itself. This morning we're going to see in verses 1 to 4, preparation for the mission. And in verses 5 to 11, operation of the mission. And in verses 12 to 16, rejection of the mission. So again, Jesus is is once again sending out disciples to do the ministry that he has been doing. Healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom. Before long, Jesus is going to depart. And the disciples, in addition to the apostles, are going to be the ones who will, in the power of the Holy Spirit, carry on the work. So then, as now, the ministry will continue in the authority of Jesus as laborers for the Lord of the harvest. So first of all, preparation for the mission, verses 1 to 4. 
Remember at the beginning of chapter 9 that Jesus had sent out the 12. But after what we've seen in the, over the last few weeks, it would be easy to conclude that the disciples did nothing but fail. But these disciples faithfully discharged their duties. Remember that back in chapter 9. They had actually gone out and done exactly what Jesus had told them to do. And remember, word had spread, even, even as, far as, as far as Herod, about, about what these 12 disciples had done as they'd gone throughout the region. Then it was Galilee proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, operating the ministry that Jesus had given them. So it's, it's not just failure upon failure of the disciples. Yes, they failed, but they were, were not always failing. They went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing. And now as Jesus' ministry has transitioned and he is headed towards Jerusalem, as he set his face towards Jerusalem, he sends out another larger group of disciples. Now some manuscripts say it was 70. The ESV says 72. It's actually pretty evenly split on the manuscripts on this. So it's really hard to tell whether it was 70 or 72. And assuming that it's 70, some see a symbolic link with the, the 70 names that are on the table of nations in Genesis 10. And others see a symbolic link with the 70 elders commissioned by Moses in Exodus 24. But I I contend to you that the the exact number here is not the main point. We can't know that specifically. But we do know, the important thing to note is that the mission is expanding. That Jesus' mission is expanding. That Jesus is now sending this group, these 70 or 72 out ahead of him, into all the places that he is about to go as he is on his way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus sends them out two by two as he had the twelve, a detail not mentioned in, Mar- in uh, Luke, but clear in Mark. And in this going, in going out in pairs, they would actually serve as a, a double witness, attesting to the, the truths of the gospel that they were called to proclaim. So this, is a, this, this was a proclamation of preparation, a proclamation of preparation of preparing people for the coming of Jesus. And you're doing the same thing. Every time you evangelize, every time you tell someone about Jesus, about the coming of Jesus, you are engaged in a, in a proclamation of preparation. Jesus is sending you out to prepare people for his arrival. And I'm so encouraged when I, when I hear that, that some among you are, are intentionally doing that in your interactions with family members and, and friends and neighbors and, and co-workers that, that, and even people you bump into on the street that, that you are intentionally telling them about Jesus. That, that you are seeking to live up to what you are called evangelical. It's a great encouragement. It emboldens me in my own evangelism. But I wish it was the case that more of us were doing this. I'd love to see all of us engaged in evangelism. In fact, we are all called to engage in evangelism. Now, you might not be particularly gifted as an evangelist. You might, ha- might not have the office of the evangelist, but you are all called, if you are an evangelical, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called, you are commanded to evangelize. Now, you're not going to face any serious repercussions for evangelism in this culture at this particular moment. You you won't be arrested for preaching the gospel in this culture right now, not unlike many of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for the name of Christ. But my question for you is, if, if you are not doing evangelism now while it's legal, 
What will you do if it becomes illegal? If people say it is, you are not allowed to tell people that their problem is sin and that the only solution is Jesus Christ. If you're not going to do it when it's legal, what are you going to do when it is illegal? I wonder, as we, we spoke about the, the, the brother Ibrahim that we're, we're praying for in Iran, if, if the charges of evangelism would be dropped against you, citing a lack of evidence. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Again, the mission is growing. There, there's now, again, 70 or 72 heading out, but, but that's still not enough. It wasn't enough then, and it isn't enough now. And so Jesus commands, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice here that missionary labor is, is referred to as a harvest. Missionary labor is often referred to as a harvest. But there's also in this is a sense of, of, of coming judgment, of the ingathering, when the, the wheat is gathered into the barn, but the, the chaff is burnt up, Matthew 3.12. So part of the goal here is, is that the number of laborers is increased so that the harvest the harvest can be reaped. reaped. And the idea here then is that, that as these, this, group of, this larger group of disciples goes out, that they will tell other people about Jesus and that they in turn will tell other people about Jesus. Remember as we talked to Caleb Jabello last week and as he, he spoke about their, their pioneer missionary work in the village of Mocha, as they go into Mocha and the surrounding villages to name the name of Christ, to proclaim the name of Christ, where Christ has not been proclaimed, the idea is that there would be a lasting witness, that the, the people of that region would take ownership of the responsibility that they have to tell others about Jesus, and that they themselves will go out. I wonder, who, who has, has the Lord placed in your life? What, what unbelievers has the Lord placed in your life that yet you are uniquely and sovereignly positioned to evangelize? Who is it? I wonder, do you love that person enough to tell them the gospel? Do you love that person enough to tell them that they need to turn away from their sin and to be born again? And do you love the Lord enough to tell them these things. So then the, the, the part of, of praying, the responsibility then is to, to pray and to proclaim the gospel so that the, the work can expand even more. The, the mission is reliant on God, on God. Therefore, laborers must be committed to prayer. Us too. Laborers for the harvest are prayers to the Lord of the harvest. Laborers for the harvest are prayers, those who pray to the Lord of the harvest. The Lord has, has then commanded his people to pray, and he's sovereignly, sovereignly decreed that he would work in response to the prayers of his people. And so the mission's growth will, will not be determined ultimately by the efforts of the laborers in the field, but by by, but on the Lord of the harvest. The labor is dependent ultimately upon him. So he tells us, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Now you might not feel able to go 
Maybe, maybe you're not unable to go to the, to, to the four corners of the earth to proclaim the gospel, but, but you can go across the street. You can go to your neighbor. You can go to the person sitting in the desk next to you at work. You could tell them about Jesus. But maybe you even feel ill-equipped to do that. Maybe you feel that, that you are either through, through a lack of knowledge of the word or a lack of confidence in the word or, uh, or, or even the fear of man. Maybe you feel unable to preach the gospel. Pray. Pray that the Lord would send workers out into the harvest. And maybe the Lord will even send you out into the harvest. Again, the Lord has commanded his people to pray and has sovereignly decreed that he would work in response to the prayers of his people. People like you and me. Just average men and women like you and me. God has decreed that he would hear your prayers and he would work in response to your prayers. Now think of Elijah and how the Lord answered his prayers. You might be thinking, well, I'm no Elijah. But you are more like Elijah than you can even understand. James 5, 16 and 17, the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is, as it is working. Elijah was a man, hear this, with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You and I have a nature like Elijah's. Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain. Elijah prayed, and it rained. And the earth gave forth its fruit. How much more then should, should you and I Pray to the Lord of the harvest that the earth would yield its fruit of worshipers to God. Laborers for the harvest are prayers to the Lord of the harvest. And again, who knows, but, but maybe in response to your prayers for laborers, the Lord will send you. Now, Jesus has told these disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And now notice that in the next verse, we see Jesus sending them out. He says, behold, I'm sending you. So you see what's, what's happening here. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the harvest. He's saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. And then he's sending the workers. So Jesus himself is the Lord of the harvest. But the mission is not easy. Far from it. The mission is dangerous. So laborers must trust God. Us too. Laborers for the harvest are lambs in the harvest, trusting in the Lord of the harvest. Again, verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, a few of us have much direct experience with sheep, but sheep do not have natural defenses, especially against their mortal enemies, wolves. And so sheep are vulnerable to attack. Jesus is saying that there, there are real dangers in following me. He does not sugarcoat it. They aren't going on a Mediterranean cruise. They're going into battle. And they're going out unarmed, at least in the conventional sense. 
You cannot protect yourself by protecting yourself. You cannot win the fight by fighting. You win the fight by dying. Dying to yourself. Dying to your rights. Dying to the world. And those who are dead in such a way have nothing to fear. The world will hate disciples because the world hates Jesus. John 15, 18 and 19. So laborers will face rejection as we've just seen. Laborers will face persecution. Laborers will face temptation. And you will not overcome these enemies using fleshly means. Fleshly weapons are not available to you. You cannot stand against your enemies in your own strength. You cannot stand, just stand up for your rights any more than Jesus could when he was being unjustly treated by the Jewish religious leadership and by the Romans. The mission is reliant on the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, laborers must entrust themselves and the mission into his sovereign care. They are to look to the Lord of the harvest for their protection. And therein lies the path of true power and true victory. 2 Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. And so laborers, like lambs, must look to the shepherd for protection. I'm sure we're all familiar with, with Psalm 23, verses 1 to 5. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Similarly, Isaiah 40, 11, The Lord will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead those that are with, with young. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 11. The help will come. Of that you can be assured. However, it may not come in the form of deliverance from the trial, but rather it might come, deliverance might come through in coming through the trial. As Jesus' sheep follow in his steps. Allow me to quote from Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is a book which, which in my opinion, every Christian needs to read. I'll tell you now, it will not be an enjoyable read, but it will, I trust, be an edifying and an emboldening read. Hear this. This is the testimony of, of three men who were martyred in Belgium. Since it is the life, sorry, since it is the will of the Almighty that we should suffer for his name and be persecuted for the sake of the gospel, we patiently submit and are joyful upon the occasion. Though the flesh may rebel against the spirit and hearken to the counsel of the old serpent, yet the truths of the, of the gospel shall prevent such advice from being taken, and Christ shall bruise the serpent's head. We are not comfortless in confinement, for we have faith. We fear not affliction, for we have hope, and we forgive our enemies, for we have charity. 
Be not under apprehensions for us. We are happy in confinement through the promises of God, glory in our bonds, and exult in being thought worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. We desire not to be released, but to be blessed with fortitude. We ask not liberty, but the power of perseverance, and wish no change in our condition, but that which places a crown of martyrdom upon our heads. These were men. These were simple Christians, simple Christians like you and me. And the Lord empowered them. The Lord protected them through the trial. He did not deliver them from it, but delivered them through it so they remained faithful to him throughout the trial. Laborers for the harvest are lambs in the harvest, trusting in the Lord of the harvest. The mission is not just dangerous. It takes dedication. It takes your all. The mission is demanding. Therefore, laborers must rely upon God's provision. Us too. Laborers of the harvest will receive provision from the Lord of the harvest. Verse 4. Laborers for the harvest are dedicated to the harvest. So Jesus instructs the, this, this group of disciples, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. This is very similar to what we saw in Luke chapter 9. When Jesus sent out the twelve, where, where these items are also listed in what they were to take and what they were not to take. They, they were to travel light, not taking extra provisions, trusting God that everything that they needed would be provided for them along the way through the generosity of those who received their ministry. They must first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that all these things will be added to, added to them. Matthew 6 33. He's saying your needs will be supplied through those to whom you minister. Now, now this is not universally applied. But this, is, this is not an enduring promise to all disciples. Of the various missions trips that, that I've been on, we, we always had the opportunity and privilege of paying our own way. But neither was this a, a permanent requirement even here. It was a temporary provision, or rather a lack of provision. Jesus will point out the lesson learned in Luke 23, verses 35 and 36, reminding them of God's provision and telling them not to take a, a money bag, or reminding them rather to take a money bag and a knapsack and so on. So he's reversing his earlier directive. But the bottom line principle is still the same. Laborers of the harvest will receive provision from the Lord of the harvest. Similarly, laborers of the harvest will be dedicated to the Lord of the harvest. The, the mission is, is focused single-mindedly on God. Therefore, laborers must avoid distraction. Us too. Look at the last instruction of verse 4. Greet no one on the road. Now, this might sound a little bit rude if you see somebody you know just to, just to keep on walking and, and ignore the fact that you just saw them. But Jesus is essentially saying here that laborers are to focus on the people to whom they have been sent to minister. They're not, they're not to, to dilly-dally with friends or acquaintances along the way. They're not to be distracted. We saw this last week, didn't we, in the, in the, the instruction about disciples with the, the would-be disciple who didn't want to follow Jesus until he had buried his father. Or the other would-be disciple who didn't want to follow Jesus until he had gone back to say goodbye to his family. 
Now, in the first case, it was a matter, again, of, of wrong priorities, of, of idolatry. In the second, it was more a matter of instability, of looking back to his past life. But both are cases of misplaced priorities, really. Because single-minded dedication is required. And so laborers of the harvest will be dedicated to the Lord of the harvest. Well, now let's look at verses 5 to 9, the operation of the mission. The operation of the mission. Having been thus told how to prepare for the mission, the 72 are now taught how to undertake the mission. When they arrive in the town that to where, they're, where they're to minister, they're to enter the, the, go first to the house and to say, peace be to this house. Peace be to this house. So as messengers of peace, laborers of the harvest, proclaim peace. And peace is a common theme in Luke's gospel account. As, as Joel Green explains, in Luke, the Greco-Roman notion of peace as the absence of war, social discord, and sedition has been shaped by the expansion uh, and, and the presentation of peace, shalom, in the Old Testament as communal well-being, euphoria, security, plenty, and the like. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that, that peace goes far beyond the, the social understanding of peace. It goes far beyond peace with your fellow human beings, and though that is in view as well. It is peace with God. Ministers of the gospel are sent out to proclaim peace with God through the gospel. Such peace is the gift of God. It is a gift that can either be accepted as we'll see here, or rejected, as we'll see in a moment. And both have eternal consequences. Jesus continues in verse 6. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon you. But if not, it will return to you. Now a son of peace is, is one whose life is, is characterized by peace. Whether this refers to someone who has already begun to embrace peace with God or someone whose heart has been predisposed to receive the laborers with their message through the work of the Holy Spirit, both are a work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. If such a person wants peace with God, they will receive God's peace. If not, God will reject them. The laborers are not to convey a blessing to someone who does not want it. You do not need to force someone to hear the gospel. If they refuse to listen to you, move on. Move on. They have made their choice. There will either be acceptance or rejection of the message. The, the message will receive a response. The, mes the message necessitates a response. In the words of, of Neil Pert, those who choose not to decide still have made a choice. And Neil Pert made his choice. He was an agnostic. He isn't anymore. Sadly, he died earlier this year. He now knows fully the truth that he rejected, and he has seen the God that he rejected. But the present focus is on those who receive the laborers. Verses 7 and 8. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. He says, do not go from house to house. When you enter into a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. 
Now, this is similar to the instructions that are given to the twelve again in, in chapter 9. Stay in the same house during the duration of your ministry in that town. Accept provision while you're there and, and be content with, your, with what you're given. It, you're not supposed to be going from house to house and from place to place trying to seek better and better accommodation and, and, better, and better food. Rather, just eat what is put before you. Do not be concerned about things like food and lodging. Focus again on the mission, single-mindedly on the mission. The laborer deserves his wages. The people are going to provide for you. You can feel free to join with your hosts in table fellowship. Another possible implication here is that you don't have to worry about unclean food. Jesus has declared all foods clean by this point, Mark seven nineteen. Presuming the fact that there would be Gentiles among whom they would minister, this would, meet, would give them an opportunity to be able to sit down and eat with these Gentiles without being worried about causing offense. We should let, strive to let our only offense be the gospel. People are going to be offended by you. May it be because of Christ. Not because of, of extraneous things. In verse 9, they are told to heal the sick in that place and to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near you. If the people receive them, they are to heal the people in that town. Again, the mission is pointing to God. Therefore, laborers must be faithful in the proclamation. Us too. Laborers for the harvest are proclaimers of the Lord of the harvest. Once again, we see that these laborers are engaging in the same ministry that Jesus engaged in. They're, they're healing and they're proclaiming the, the kingdom. They're healing and they're teaching. Now, in this particular context, healing was the stamp of divine endorsement on their mission. It also provided visible evidence that the kingdom of God indeed had come near. This was a sign of God's blessing. Now, in our day, we don't need the same stamp of divine endorsement. We don't need to heal people for people to know that we are from God because we have the Word of God. And so fidelity, fidelity to the Word of God is all the evidence that you need that a minister has been sent by God. The laborers are preparing the way for Jesus by proclaiming the, the nearness, the imminence of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, remember, had proclaimed the way for Jesus had prepared the way for Jesus, rather proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. He had proclaimed the imminent arrival of the kingdom. These disciples proclaimed its arrival and the coming of Christ. The time has now come. The verb that's translated here as has come is in the perfect tense, having the, the enduring effect of the arrival of the kingdom because the king is here. Now, of course, we're speaking here again of the, the already not yet. Jesus' rule and reign have been inaugurated, but they will be fulfilled fully and finally at his return. Our message is also about the nearness of the kingdom of God. We have the same message. Christ inaugurated the kingdom in his incarnation, and again, he will fulfill it at his return. And we don't know when it's going to happen, but it might be very, very soon. And so we tell people to prepare for his coming. As, as Isaac Watts wrote in his glorious hymn, Joy to the World, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. This is the message. Prepare 
room for the coming of Christ. Now, although this hymn is, is properly known as a Christmas carol, it actually is not about the birth of Christ. It's actually about his triumphant return. I like to sing that at other times of the year, besides, besides just at Christmas time. We tell people, Jesus is coming. Let your heart prepare for his return. So finally, let's consider rejection of the mission in verses 10 to 16. Rejection of the mission. Having been told by Jesus how to prepare for the mission and how to conduct the mission uh, upon the acceptance of them and their message, Jesus now tells the, this group of disciples how to conduct themselves when people reject the mission. Verses 10 and 11. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Notice that they are not to call down fire from heaven, like James and John had wanted to do to the Samaritan village in Luke 9, 54. This judgment that is being spoken of here is not yet. It is a future judgment. Again, it might be soon, but it is not yet. They're simply to shake off the dust of their feet as a public testimony against the people of that town, saying your blood is on your own heads. This is also very similar to the instructions that Jesus gave to the twelve in chapter 9. And I explained there that the, the dust of, of Gentile territory was considered unclean, defiling those who came into contact with it. And so pious Jews who had traveled through Gentile territory upon leaving would shake that dust of that Gentile region off their feet. And so a disciple shaking the dust off his feet is a testimony against those people. They're, they're saying, you are not God's people. We find Paul and Barnabas doing just that against the Jews of Antioch in Pisidia in Acts 13.51. So Jesus tells them to shake off the dust from their feet. But he includes another instruction. They're to say, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. It is the same message to those who accepted it. Whether you accept or reject the message, the message remains the same. Rejection does not change the fact of what has taken place. Just because people deny the truth does not make it any less true. Remember in high school, there was... In my math exams, there was, there was plenty of times that I got the wrong answer. Plenty of times. No matter how certain I was of, of my answer, my certainty did not make the answer correct. If I deny gravity, I'm still every bit as much subject to the laws of gravity as it would be if I accepted it wholeheartedly. Rejection of the message does not change in one iota the truth of the message. Certainty does not dictate reality. Unfaithful laborers will try to water down the message, to water down the truth, to make it more palatable. But the mission is the proclamation of the God of truth. 
Therefore, laborers must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help them God. Us too. Laborers of the harvest will proclaim the truth and leave the results of the harvest to the Lord of the harvest. You understand that, right? It is, is not your responsibility to bring people in the kingdom, into the kingdom of God. Your responsibility is to proclaim the truth to every creature. You are to proclaim the truth and leave the results to God. He is the Lord of the harvest. So now Jesus gives the warning for those who reject the message. Verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now this would have been an absolutely shocking statement. Sodom was synonymous with wickedness. Sodom did not just receive temporal judgment in its initial destruction in Genesis 19. It received eschatological and eternal judgment on the day of the Lord. Nevertheless, Jesus says, Sodom will fare better than a town that rejects the message of the kingdom. Everyone is responsible for the truth that is revealed to them. You are responsible for the truth that is revealed to you today. As J.C. Rowell explains, all will be judged according to their spiritual light, and that from those who have enjoyed the most religious privileges, most will be required. The wheat will be gathered into the barn, but the chaff will be burned up by the Lord of the harvest. They will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 14 and 15. The smoke of Sodom went up like a furnace, Genesis 19, 28, in, in its temporal judgment. But the smoke of the torment of all who reject God will go up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, Revelation 14, 11. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. This is the rejection and the retribution experienced by those who have rejected the message of the kingdom. Oh, may that not be true of any among us. Jesus continues in verses 13 to 15, pronouncing woe on specific cities that rejected his ministry. Jesus is continuing the same theme. Judgment is coming for all who reject the message of the kingdom. However, the judgment will be worse for those who witnessed Jesus' ministry than those who had not. And what follows is almost identical to Matthew 11, 20 to 24, but it's presented in a different context. The, the word woe is onomatopoeic. It, it reflects the sound of wailing. Woe is a, a pronunciation of anguish. Chorazin is only mentioned here and in Matthew 11 in, in the Bible, revealing that, that Jesus' ministry was, was extensive and much of it was not recorded for us. Uh, John 21:35 says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he is, Jesus evidently has this ministry in Chorazin that we really don't know anything about other than what is briefly mentioned here. But Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are in northern Galilee. 
which is where Jesus had centered most of his ministry thus far. But Tyre and Sidon, on the other hand, are being compared with here, are Gentile cities north of Israel on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And they are repeatedly listed in Old Testament prophecies coming under God's judgment. You can read about the judgment of Tyre and Sidon in in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Joel, and Amos. They all include pronouncements of judgment against those cities. And Jesus is saying that those cities would have demonstrated heartfelt repentance had they been witnesses to the same miraculous work of the Lord. Again, verse 14, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Although judgment is proclaimed against them repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets, Tyre and Sidon had not rejected Jesus in the same way as Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum had. They did not have the same blessing of Jesus' ministry there, though he did forgive the Syrophoenician woman who was from that region. These Galilean cities will face the worst of God's wrath. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Luke 12, 48. You are in a church that proclaims the word of God. We pray the word of God. We sing the word of God. We read the word of God. We preach the word of God. We believe the word of God. And that, for that truth that has been revealed to you, you will give an account. For those who will reject this message, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, it is actually worse than for those who have never heard at all. Jesus finishes this proclamation of woe by focusing specifically on Capernaum, the center of much of his Galilean ministry. Verse 15, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Now, although there was some positive reception initially, clearly it has not resulted in repentance and saving faith for the majority of the people. Make note of that. The initial response of people to your evangelistic efforts will be either, either positive or negative, does not necessarily tell you what the end result will be. Many will respond favorably and then turn around and reject it. We saw this in the parable of the soils. And many others who reject you out of hand, reject the message out of hand, will at some later point come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do not rely on the initial response. It is those who endure to the end who are saved. And so would these people in Capernaum think they're headed for heaven, but they're headed for hell? I wonder if those are among us this morning who, who think that they're headed for heaven, but are headed for hell. As E. Earl Ellis proclaims, Jesus predicts the future humbling or death of the city. Today, today the deserted site of Capernaum bears its eloquent, silent testimony to his prophecy. You can visit Capernaum today and see that all that is left is ruins. Nothing but cold, dead stone. Cold and dead as most of the inhabitants of that city 
during Jesus' day. So Jesus finally closes with a comment about the reality of rejection, about what is really taking place when a person rejects one who has come with a proclamation of the kingdom of God. Verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. To accept the laborer is to accept the Lord of the harvest. To reject the laborer is to reject the Lord of the harvest. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Messengers of the gospel are Jesus' representatives, his ambassadors. Now, this has been been twisted in the the so-called apostolic churches, most notoriously in the NAR movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, where they say that that to reject a leader who is presumed to be an apostle is seen to be a rejection of Jesus. And so the refrain is, touch not the Lord's anointed. They're they're ripping Psalm 105, 15 out of its context. You must reject those who claim to be ministers of the word, but whose message does not line up with the message of the Bible. But if someone faithfully proclaims the message, listen and obey. Anyone who hears such a messenger hears Jesus. Anyone who hears such a messenger hears Jesus. Ministers of the gospel are Christ's messengers. They are his ambassadors. Teachers are required to preach the whole counsel of God's word, and they'll be held accountable for their faithfulness to God's word. The warning is clear in James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Now I shudder at this. I'm a laborer. For the Lord of the harvest. I am a herald of God's word. But Jesus is not just speaking of those who bear the office of teacher or pastor here. Jesus is not just talking about me. Jesus is talking about you. You are a herald. You are an ambassador for Christ. You have the authority to claim to Proclaim peace with God through the gospel. This is an authority that you have. This is an authority that we all have as children of God. You've been entrusted. We have all been entrusted with the message of the kingdom of God. Let's close with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 11. Part of the passage that, that Warren read for us earlier. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. God has reconciled you to God through Christ. You have been given the message of reconciliation. You are an ambassador for Christ. God is making his appeal through you. And so you implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the gospel that has been entrusted to you and to me. 28 years ago today, 
I first heard the gospel message. I was sitting in a psychiatric hospital when I heard a televangelist proclaiming the message, the good news of the kingdom of God, of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Because that laborer was faithful to Christ's command, because he was faithful to preach the gospel, the Lord of the harvest gathered another soul into his kingdom. Has the Lord of the harvest gathered your soul into his kingdom? Will you be faithful to preach the gospel? Will you be a faithful laborer for the Lord of the harvest? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your sovereign and saving grace. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are indeed the Lord of the harvest and that you will save all of your people. And Lord, as the one who ordains the ends, you also ordain the, ordains the means. And just as you have commanded that we pray and have decreed that you would operate in response to the prayers of your people. Lord, do you have decreed that you would work in response to the proclamation of the gospel to save souls? This is the means that you have ordained. This is the means that we have been entrusted with. Lord, I pray that even now as we reflect on these things, that there are, if there are some who are, are hearing these words who are not yet part of the kingdom, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would come to saving faith in Christ. Lord Jesus, that you would receive them as their Savior, that they would receive you as, rather, that they would receive you as their Savior and Lord. Lord, we pray that, that you would help each one of us, Lord, who have been given this treasure in jars of clay, this glorious gospel, that you would help us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit in our hearts to be faithful to discharge these duties that you have given us. That your name would get the glory that it deserves. That your church would be built and that your kingdom would be advanced. 